and gentlemen, and welcome to the final episode of Stand Up Tragedy series of podcasts to accompany our last live night. On the 10th of April, Stand Up Tragedy brought performers together with an audience to explore the idea of tragic martyrs. This Stand Up Tragedy special is going to let you hear a little bit more about what the idea was all about and find out a little bit more from our performers. You can already listen to all the acts from that night on the other episodes of our podcast on our SoundCloud and iTunes page. My name's Bryony. And even though I couldn't be at Tragic Martyrs, I asked Charlie Harrison to have a chat with some of the acts. I'm going to let you hear what Stand Up Tragedy is all about straight from Dave, who runs Stand Up Tragedy and hosts the live show. Here he is on stage at the Dogster, telling our audience all about Stand Up Tragedy. Hello, everybody. Excellent stuff, excellent stuff. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. And what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we stand up and we do tragedy. Uh, it's a variety night, so you're going to see some comedy, you're going to see some spoken word, you're going to see some storytelling, you're going to see all sorts of wonderful things. I don't even want to spoil it by revealing what you're going to see. What we do here at Stand Up Tragedy is we make people cry until they laugh and laugh until you till they cry. So the content tonight may be serious, it may, may very well be sad, it may also make you laugh. So be prepared to go through the whole gamut of emotions tonight uh, and be prepared to go to some dark places, but also be prepared to have some lights shined into those dark places. We're a podcast as well as a live show, as I've already mentioned. Uh, so you can find that on our SoundCloud or on iTunes. Um, so if you enjoy tonight, you can tell all your friends to listen next week. And if you don't enjoy tonight, then you don't tell your friends to listen next week. We also are taking videos of the nights. So um, our videoer, uh, Julia, is going to be filming it and we're going to be putting them out on our, on our uh, YouTube site. Uh, she also is making a film called Four Wise Monkeys. So make sure you uh, take a, a flyer about what she's doing, which is over on the bar. Because we have a bar tonight, but we can't serve any booze on it. But we can serve merchandise. Uh, so have a look around that table. We've got a fanzine that comes out every month, so you can have a think about whether you'd like to buy some of those fanzines. Uh, we've got back uh, catalogues, back issues, as well as the most recent one. Uh, Liz is holding it up, I think, somewhere in the darkness. There you go. Uh, so have a look at that bar um, and have a think about buying some of those. And some of our performers may also have merch on, on there, and I obviously thoroughly recommend their work. We also tonight have... Peter Mori, the live scriber over on the wall uh, there. He's going to be drawing the night uh, as, it, as it goes on. So make sure in your breaks, the bar's a good place to go, but also over here to have a look at the work that Peter's doing. Uh, it's really great. We had him do the last one. Um, so check that out. Keep, keep an eye on what he's doing as the night goes on. There's also a way for you guys to get involved with the tragedy tonight. Because uh, at Stand Up Tragedy, we like to share the tragedy. So what we've got is we've got a pad of uh, paper with some pens over there. Um, so for you to write uh, the last letter of a tragic martyr. Because that's what tonight is all about. It's about tragic martyrs. That's our theme tonight. And so the, uh, that's, the, that's the carrot. No, that's the stick. Uh, the carrot is a box of chocolates. So if you write a last uh, letter of a tragic martyr, you get to take a chocolate. Uh, but if you don't, then you don't. So uh, get some chocolates, write down some tragedy. Uh, don't write down anything that you don't want us to share with the internet, because we will probably share it with the internet and in our fanzine as well. So 
Write something, please. You get a chocolate, but don't write anything that's going to get you in trouble. Each live night has a theme this year. So far, we've done tragic beginnings, tragic love, tragic heroes, and next, we're doing tragic history. Here's Dave introducing the theme of tragic martyrs. Tonight is about martyrs, which means that tonight is basically a night of people talking about the stuff that you're not supposed to talk about at dinner parties. Uh, politics and religion. Uh, there's also some science there as well, which I think people are... You're, you are, you are, there's no kind of... People don't say you shouldn't talk about science at, at dinner parties, but I think it can be quite a controversial topic as well. I think I'm sure we'll find that out tonight. And it's really been hard to book tonight as well because there's not very many acts that necessarily uh, feel like comfortable with the idea of being representing martyrdom. Uh, but, the, but the acts we have got are really exciting, a really exciting mix, actually. Sometimes when you set yourself up, I guess, with a big uh, task, a big challenge, you can get some great results. So hopefully we're going to have some great results tonight. So you may have guessed, I haven't really prepared for tonight. Normally I really do prepare. I'm, I'm a very prepare kind of person, but since I've had some life tragedy of losing my job and stuff, I decided to go away on holiday, and I only came back today. So uh, this morning I was in a different country. Uh, so what do you do when you haven't prepared? You go to Wikipedia. So uh, that's what I've done. Uh, so a, a martyr, uh, apparently according to Wikipedia, comes from the, uh, the Greek word witness uh, and is somebody who suffers persecution and death for advocating, renouncing, refusing to renounce and or refusing to advocate a belief or cause, usually a religious one. Uh, it's, uh, in its original meaning, the word martyr, meaning witness was used in the secular sphere as well as in the New Testament and the Bible. Uh, during the early Christian centuries, the term acquired the extended meaning of a believer who is called to witness for their religious belief, and on account of this witness endures suffering and or death. So death isn't necessary to become a martyr, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of death tonight because uh, it's a tragic night. Uh, the, the term uh, in this later sense entered the English language as a loan word. The death of a martyr or the value attributed to it is called martyrdom. Uh, so the process of bearing witness that this martyr stuff was all about, it was not intended originally, as I just said, to result in the death of the witness. But I reckon it makes sense that it often does because... It seems to me quite a tragic flaw within the act of witnessing because when you witness something, uh, you have seen something happen, something true that you can speak to. Um, and we're both attracted and uh, horrified by the truth, I think. And so no wonder people get killed for it or kill themselves for it. Um, and a witness has witnessed some truth and they can speak to it and they can refuse to renounce that truth. And tonight, we are all witnesses of some uh, tragedy. Some, and we are all in the position, I guess, of martyrs seeing some truth tonight. Uh, hopefully no one's going to die as a result. Uh, I, can't, I, can't say, I can't say. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but I don't think, I don't think they will. Um, an absolute belief, that's what a, a martyr has, Right? And uh, it seems to me that that kills people, whether it's right or it's wrong, that belief. Uh, so uh, what I'd like to ask you tonight, are there any ideas that you would be prepared to die for? Wow, stony silence. Let's see. Has anybody got anything they'd be prepared to die for? Life. Life. 
That's a, that's a nice contradiction there. Uh, pretty difficult to die. Well, I guess for somebody else's life, are you thinking? For your own life. You die for your own life. Okay? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that I'm in a room full of cowards because I don't want to die for anything either. Um, but I guess you don't know until you're in the moment when you have to make a decision. So we're all sort of thinking here, we wouldn't die for anything. But the more our rights are taken away, I don't know where we'll all stand on that. Um, and I don't know if I could be that brave or that stupid. Um, but I love the moments that people sacrifice themselves for an impossible dream that happened in Hollywood movies. So if I like that, maybe I could be as cool as those people. I don't know. Um, Aren't all tragic heroes, to a certain extent, martyrs in some way, I think, because they die for an ideal, a belief, an idea, or a part of themselves that they can't change? And at the very least, martyrs are people, aren't they? Like us, because they're people, and we're people. So their deaths are tragedies in the modern sense of the word, because every death of every person is surely a tragedy, as, it's, as in it's sad, and that's what we've come to mean when we say tragedy. Many martyrs turn out to have been right, uh, many don't. But anyway, uh, who is the person making the call about whether they're right or wrong? Uh, not me. I know that I don't know anything. Uh, that's all I can say on that. Uh, I'm generally wrong, so I'm not going to be a martyr tonight. But tonight, as I said, we're all witnesses, so hopefully none of us are going to die. And that's a great way of introducing a comedy act, isn't it? That's what you can expect to hear from each of our live shows. Last month, the audience saw some acts that were a little bit too visual to bring to you on the podcast. Here's Katie and Jay from the sketch duo Next Best Thing talking to Charlie after their performance. So here we are uh, at the dog store in Brixton. You with aubergine in on a plate and a knife. Yes. Can you just introduce yourselves and why would you be hand, why would you be uh, holding that? Can you just introduce yourselves um, and yes. say what you've just done? Uh, I'm Jay. Uh, I'm part of Next Best Thing. Uh, we're a comedy sketch group. I'm Katie. I'm also part of Next Best Thing. <laughs> Fine. Uh, the, the comedy sketch group. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the reason why we've got a, a courgette, a cup courgette on a plate is because we were doing a comedy sketch uh, for the Tragic Martyrs night and we spent our the sketch chopping vegetables. Yeah, because <laughs> it's so in love. Yes. It was very, very tight to the martyr theme, so did you write it specifically for tonight? Uh, the second one was yes. written. Okay. Uh, we did the first one a couple of years ago yeah. um, in a house, and it's one we haven't been able to like, redo very often. So, uh, yeah, so it's really <laughs> it's nice, nice to be able to, be able to bring to it out. Yeah. Um, it's a really, really fun one to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we've really enjoyed ourselves. Wicked. So. How long have you guys been doing it? Um, as the next best thing since yeah. September. So we September. were a comedy trio before that, so oh. we've been around yes. since. Was it a Jerry Spice Girl situation? Um, no, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was quite a... One of us works a lot longer than It was like evenings that we couldn't, you know, we obviously have to gig in the evenings, right. so it's just one of those kind of difficult things. Uh, we also live really close uh, to each other. We both are from Kingston. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. Um, it's quite easy to meet up for rehearsals and okay. stuff, which is nice. And how did you meet? Ballet when we were like a long, long time, and we went to secondary school together, and then we were sort of been 
didn't go to obviously the same uni and then we sort of came together to do comedy. Yeah. Because <laughs> okay. Katie uh, is a writer so she uh, writes the sketches and she uh, graduated from Central um, and I went to drama school so we kind of combined Forces. Forces. Yes. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to try and make people laugh. Which is, it's very enjoyable. <laughs> Have you got a favourite martyr? Uh, Joan of Arc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, yeah, no one hasn't yeah. said Joan of Arc yet. Yeah. Yeah. I don't oh, guess the only yeah. one people I can, I can think of anyway. If you want to see their sketches, Julia records the whole of the night and there are videos for you to watch on our Facebook and YouTube channel. Similarly, Daniel Barker was back to perform some tragic magic for us, which is definitely worth watching. The best bit about stand-up tragedy is you never know what acts are going to do, and we get all kinds of people up on stage. Here's singer-songwriter Martin zoltz Olswick, who performs as Sound of the Ladies. Uh, so this is a song about... Uh, this, is, this guy isn't really a martyr, but I, I've mart martyred him in my song. It's about uh, a guy called Joseph Bazalgette. Do people know who Joseph Bazalgette is? Yeah. Uh, someone want to praise you for me? He's the guy, so he's the guy that uh, was instrumental in rebuilding the, the, or extending the Victorian sewer system. And um, he wasn't really a martyr. I mean, he had a pretty good life. He was knighted and all that kind of jazz. Uh, but he, um, he did have a breakdown in, in his 20s. I think that's as close as he gets to martyr martyrdom. In my song, um, I martyr him because he has a, a sort of like petty mal epilepsy episode and is trapped in a dream world of an infinite sewer. Uh, which, uh, which is uh, so he did. He wasn't a martyr himself, but I martyred him. The song is called Ten Thousand Letters of Love," and if you like the, the, um, the thing, the video, you can see it online as well. Um, Ten Thousand Letters of Love" is the name of the song, uh, and in a second, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start. I've never stepped into a downpour I stand between raindrops Hearing their heartbeats and breathing The petrichor breathing the petrichor The sultry sky sent me Ten thousand love letters You never knew all I needed Was you But how could I know And how could she know me When I never once met her I never once met her I once met Basil Jett, the prince of affection. He loved the glory but hated the attention from ten thousand plumbers and their endless questions. They honored and batched him. Imperial style for reflecting your bitter pat tears. In a smile, you weren't even worthy. A cursory mention 
You'd not have been grateful for the attention You'd not have been grateful for the attention I wonder whether I'd have liked him better He'd shut his mouth and just listen Some more he'd smell petrichor, petrichor, petrichor And his body would ripple and fall to the floor And what did he dream but a labyrinth of brick Where he'd roam in a rain 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 Ten thousand tributes from the city above Ten thousand letters Letters of love Stand between raindrops Hearing the heartbeats and breathing The petrichor breathing Petrichor There was also some comedy from Deborah Francis-White. Charlie spoke with her before the show about her choice of what to perform, which fitted in with the theme of Chadrick Martyrs. I'm going to ask the audience if they would prefer me to talk about when I was a Jehovah's Witness, as an adolescent Jehovah's Witness, or finding my biological mother. Oh, that's such a hard choice. It's going to be a hard choice for them. It's a Sophie's choice, if you will. Okay, and I guess how do they relate to martyrdom? Well, they don't really. No, they do. Oh, they do. The Jehovah's Witnesses, well, everything he was talking about was witnessing something and who would die for something. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you will absolutely die for your cause. Oh. And you would kill for it, if necessary, although they would not think that was necessary. Uh, It's it's an absolute... It is a cause of martyrs. And I think the adoption thing, I'm just thinking a lot about sort of um, a certain year of of biological mothers whose babies were... Strongly suggested be taken away, yeah. and uh, what that did out of that generation of women, I suppose. Um, and you know, and my story is one that where I have a wonderful relationship with my mother, mm. um, who uh, adopted me, who is my who's my mum. Mm. You know, she's my mum. Yeah. Um, but 
Uh, I think there's some martyrdom in adoption, definitely. You know, if you give your baby away so that they can have a better life... OK, OK, yeah. You know, that's, that's a hard thing, I would say, for a biological mother to have to do. Mm. So I think... Uh, there is a yeah. I mean, yes. if, if I was asked to talk about martyrdom, and I just thought yeah, tragic no, martyrdom, and I thought there's just there's, there's a tragedy in in yeah. uh, in that yeah. situation. And would you die for anything? Um, yeah, I'd die for a child I loved. Yeah, yeah, I definitely could throw myself under a bus for a child I loved. So, what did she decide to do on the stand-up tragedy stage? So I always knew I was adopted. Uh, it was always said as if it was a very positive thing. You're special. We specially wanted you. Some people have children accidentally. Not us. We had to fill out a form. <laughs> My mother teases me now that when I was a toddler, when I met people for the first time, I used to tell them I special so they would know. I say, yes, mother, that is because you told me that. But it, the truth is, I think I probably did feel special because I was the only kid in the family who had a cool story about my birth because my brother and sister were born the regular way. Um, now, you would have been told growing up you look exactly like your mum or the spitting image of your dad. Just put your hand up if you look like your mum. Nothing bad will happen. Look like your dad. Look like some other random relative. Random relative. Random, yes. Who do you look like? Your grandfather, he's not too random. He's a direct, but, but you know, delightful. He must, he must, be, he must be cute. Uh, uh, and you, sir? So you look like your second cousin. Wow. Right, do you think you, have, you may have the same dad? It's possible. No, best to keep that suppressed. Um, or you'll end up up here. Um, that's what happens. If you're like Laura B and you face it head on, you, you, you're, up, you're up here. That's what happens. Um, uh, anybody not look like anyone in their family? Not look like anyone in their family? Uh, the, the thing is, I didn't look like anyone in the family, but people always told me anyway. They'd say, you look just like your mum or the spinning image of your dad, but I guess people see what they want to see. Because although I shared my parents' house and their, their, their food and their love, I did not share their genes. Um, the cool story about my adoption uh, that I used to ask my parents to tell me was this, went like this. Um, my parents specially asked for a baby, they filled out a form, and almost nine months to the day after they had asked, as long as you would wait for a baby anyway, my mother got a call. The lady at the hospital said to her, we have a girl for you, a baby girl for you, but you have to come and get her right now. <laughs> just don't like those do you know what I mean you always end up like that and then it goes on the internet I'm much if, could, if, we, if we could stop and do a little shoot and I'm really comfortable with that <laughs> good you have what you need now good um, I became a British citizen last week Woo! that's right I had to swear allegiance uh, to uh, the Queen and all her heirs including Prince George, the baby. I am that baby's bitch. Um, and they, they, did a formal, they did do a formal photo shoot, and I just had my photos done for Edinburgh. And so the man kept laughing, because as I was getting my certificate, everyone else could have kind of sort of came out to get their British citizen certificate, and they went like that. And every time he took a photo of me, I went... 
So I'm used to having my photo taken. I understand. And I understand the implications of someone standing down two steps, looking up. Do you see what I mean, Laura B? You're, you're only going to look like just a big jowl. And that's going to go on the... I know where it's going to be. And I'm going to Google myself in six months' time when I'm drunk, late at night, feeling less successful than, you know, is right. I think we'll all agree. And I'll see this jowly photo and I'll think, that was Angles. That was Angles. And I'll leave an anonymous comment. You know, it's probably Angles. She's probably a, a size 10. It's Angles, all Angles. So uh, my mother got a call in the middle of the day. Baby girl, you've got to come and get her now. Uh, so she had to ring my father, who was at work, in the middle of the day, and tell him, you've got to come home right now. <laughs> and, uh, but there'd been a big storm. There'd been a terrible storm, electrical storm. So the phone lines down near his work were down, so she couldn't get through. So she had to send him a telegram. And when he opened it, one of his colleagues in the office said to him, what is it? Have you won the lottery? And he said, no, it's better than that. And he got in the car and he drove home, picked up my mother and my older sister and they drove 45 minutes away in Brisbane in Redcliffe to collect me. And on the way they had to stop for nappies and bottles because they didn't have anything prepared. And when they got there, my father always used to say, the first time I saw you, you were blue with the cold and so thin. Last fucking time that happened, I'll tell you that for nothing. You get home to a nice middle class family, you eat everything put in front of you. Because the first ten days of your life you've had to flag down a passing nurse to get her to bring you milk. When the milk comes, you drink all the milk. And that shit is hardwired, people. That stays with you for life. And they, they picked me up in their arms and they took me down the steps onto the pavement of the, in front of the hospital... And as they arrived there, our neighbours, the Langleys, from 45 minutes away, just happened to be driving by in the middle of the day in the week. And they slammed the brakes on, opened the doors, jumped out and ran over to see what was going on because my parents had a newborn baby and my mother had not been pregnant. <laughs> my parents said, we've just adopted her. And as the Langleys were cooing over me and looking at me, a long line of cars backed up down the street. And my father always said, and you've been stopping traffic ever since. That was the story of my adoption. Now, my mother always said how I was more like her than her biological children, and that is true. Uh, my, my sister is very even-keeled. My mother and I are very theatrical in our emotions. Uh, my mother and I used to like to give extravagant gifts. My sister always hoarded her pocket money for a rainy day. She still got it. She still actually has that pocket money in the bank. She really does. She has that pocket money in the bank for a rainy day. Uh, my mother and I hated maths. Maths was our nemesis. My sister was good at maths. My mother and I found maths to be a language we could not understand. Uh, it was like no one could show us the dictionary. My sister deliberately took five years of sewing at school. That was on purpose deliberately took five years of sewing at school. She chose that. She didn't have to do it. I don't think you're getting it. It was a deliberate choice to sew for a five-year window. That was not compulsory. I had to do six months of sewing, and at the end of that period, all my samplers were dirty and tear-stained. Um, my, my sister is as unlike me as any human being could be. I adore my sister, but she is a tiny bird of a person, and she lives on a vegetarian retreat in rural Australia. She's always stroking a duck or eating a vegetable. 
I live in Camden Town and prefer my steak rare. Uh, my mother and I were the same. My sister was different. I'm aware some of the ways in which I'm like my mother are possibly sublimated attempts to attach myself to her. You know, I knew I wasn't really her biological child, so maybe, maybe you know the way they dress piglets in stripy jackets to get a tiger to suckle them? It's possible I'm just a piglet in disguise. I don't feel that, though. I feel uh, I came up with a very strong personality, and some of the ways in which I have a strong personality, I'm not like anyone in my family. For example, I'm the only performer in the family. My first performance uh, was my nursery school end-of-year show. I was a horse. Um, I, I had to come out with ten other little horses, and we all did a little prancy dance like this. Think Gangnam Style, only I was in a white onesie <laughs> and three years old. And I remember it really well. I remember the audience laughing and clapping and cheering. And I remember all the other horses dancing away. And I remember thinking, this audience is not done with this dance. <laughs> and they are not done with me. So I danced on, and the audience clapped more, and I danced on, and the audience laughed more, and I danced on, and the teacher had to come and lead me away. And this story was legendary in our household, because nobody would have done that. My sister was very shy. Though my sister was four years older, she used to push me in the back. She used to say, you go and buy the ice cream from the ice cream van. You're the outgoing one. My mother tells me when I was seven years old, I asked her what shy meant because I could not get my head around the concept. The other way in which I was not like anyone in my family is I always wanted to live in London, always, from the time I could read. I could read from four years old. I read all the books I read were set in London, and that's where I wanted to live. I knew I wanted to live there. Um, I was brought up in, in Australia, and I know I don't sound especially Australian, but I read a lot of Enid Blyton as a child and I picked up the accent from the books. <laughs> and in those ways I couldn't help wondering was there a mother or a father or a sister or a brother biologically speaking out there who may be like me. And I think it doesn't matter how successful your adoption is and my adoption was successful, you can't help wondering what's behind the curtain. And in my case I wondered behind the curtain was there a big family of people playing games after dinner and laughing and if I went through the curtain, would they say, oh, it's you. We've been waiting for you. There's a chair here with your name on it. Sit down. Now, I never looked. I always figured it was like a can of worms. I guess I felt that if you don't look, all the wonderful things that might be behind the curtain are still yours. But if you do look, all the terrible things that might be behind the curtain are definitely yours. So I didn't. I could have, because in Australia, adoption has been handled properly. <laughs> Here in Britain, it seems to have been handled exclusively by nuns. <laughs> People who seem to me to be uniquely unqualified to understand anything going into or coming out of a vagina. <laughs> I don't know why. There, in Australia, if you want to give your baby away, you have to give it to the state. Here, I literally know a girl who, I know an actual girl. She was handed over the fence to a neighbour. The lady was leaving the street. She said, I've got four children, you've got none. Do you want the baby? And that lady was allowed to keep that child. In Australia, no. You've got to give the baby to the state. Now, on the other hand, well, Australia was so keen to have an industrial government-run adoption programme, they pretty much snatched babies out of prams, shouted unfit mother, but they were brilliant on the paperwork. Uh, so... They apologise about every three months uh, for this embarrassing indiscretion, but they, you know, the forms are wonderfully, they're delightful admin on it. Uh, here, you just have to find the nun, and she says, oh, I think she had green eyes, and that's all you get. But there, there it's pretty easy. And when I was 21, I rang up and I asked. I said to the, uh, the, the lady there on the phone, um, I said, uh, could you tell me my biological mother's name? Now, I did not want 
to uh, contact her. I just thought I should know her name. And the lady on the other end of the phone said, well, yes, I can tell you, but if I tell you her name and then she calls, I will have to tell her your name. It's reciprocal. Do you want that? And I said, oh, God, no, I'm not ready. I may never be ready. No, no, no. I said, don't worry. Don't tell me. And she said, well, I can tell you some things. Uh, I, I can tell you that your biological mother was 21 and single. And I said, well, actually, I knew that. My parents told me that. And she said, right, well, your father was 30 and married to somebody else. And I said, well, I, I knew that. I think my parents told me that so that when I, when I was old enough to ask, ask, ask questions, that they would, so that I would know she had no choice but to give me away. My mother always used to say she must have loved you a lot to give you away. She must have loved you so much she gave you to a family who could look after you because she wouldn't have wanted to do that. And uh, so I always felt loved by everyone. I told the lady this, and she seemed almost put out that I knew and started shouting random facts at me. Well, she was five foot nine, did you know that? I did not, same as me. She had brown hair and brown eyes, did you know that? I did not, same as me. And she said, and when you were born, she called you Nadine. Did you know that? And I did not. I didn't even know biological mothers gave their babies names. And I said, well, thank you very much. That's lovely. Um, thank you. And I'll, I'll, you know, nice to have that information. And I went to hang up and she said, I can tell you a first name. I said, what? She said, I can tell you a first name. Because that information is not identifying. I can tell you her first name. So keen was she to give out information. I said, all right then, tell me your first name. She said, well, I'll have to put you on hold because that information is in a more secret file. <laughs> she went off, she came back and she said, I'm so sorry. I can't tell you. I can tell most people. There's a step there. Um, I can tell most people, but not you. You are an exception to the rule. You cannot know your biological mother's first name. And I said, why? And she said, because your birth mother's first name is so unusual as to be identifying. <laughs> and I thought, well, there you are. My birth mother is Jermaine Greer. <laughs> and I lived with that for some years. Uh, I, it was kind of a joke. I would make it kind of wasn't. I kind of thought, you know, it's good she's given me away. She's done so much for the sisterhood. No, she, she's, done a, she's done a lot with her time, and uh, one day we will discuss feminism in Cambridge, for sure. Uh, but then a few years ago, I thought, you know what, I don't think she's ever tried to find out my name, and I rang them and they said she hasn't, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to roll the dice. I reckon I can ask her name, and she's never going to ask mine. So I said, go on, tell me. Tell me. And the lady on the other end of the phone said, your birth mother's name was Devon Eulalia Pearl. That is a name, Devon Eulalia Pearl. Now my hand shook as I put that into Google because I thought I really could see something with that. You really could see, that's a one-off. That's a one-off, people. But there was nothing there. Um, there was a long line of Eulalia Pearls that went back to the 16, 1700s in Cornwall in the censuses. Um, they went back in Cornwall and Devon. Uh, long line of Eulalia Pearls, all landed gentry, big houses, lots of servants. Sure, I think we all saw that coming. <laughs> Touch of the Downton Abbs, sure. But there was nothing under, De even Devon Eulalia, even if she changed her name, I thought I might see something, and I thought, well, you know, a woman that age isn't going to suddenly start to build an enormous online profile, is she? So I just assumed I would find out no more. Uh, but, you know, she was probably just in New York City running a literary salon, <laughs> lying on a chaise long, reading poetry to handsome men. That was most likely. And I figured one day I would get a phone call saying I'd inherited a large Cornish estate. And I got back on with my life.
But on October 23rd, 2012, after a particularly boozy lunch with a friend of mine who had confessed to me that he had biological family he wanted to meet but was too scared to because he was a famous comedian and he didn't want the Daily Mail involved. I thought, oh, I haven't Googled that for ages. I'll just have a look. It'll just take a minute before I drop off to sleep. There's never anything there. And as I hit search, I had never been more wide awake. Because somebody, somebody had archived the electoral records from the time of my birth. Suddenly I could see that Devonie Lelia Pearl had been living in Cooperoo, in, in Temple Street, with her mother, Audrey, her father, Charles, her brothers, Duncan and Derek, and her sisters, Danielle and Deborah. A name my mother had dreamt for me. And that was when I began the greatest treasure hunt of my life. I didn't sleep for the following three weeks. At the end of that treasure hunt, I discovered family. Now, I won't, uh, I won't tell you any more because my ten minutes has run out. And, uh, well, I have a show about it. <laughs> I don't want to give it away. But I will just tell you this. I have spoken to my biological mother and uh, weeks later it was my birthday and uh, I'd forgotten that she would know that and she sent me something in the post she likes to sew <laughs> she said I've made you something she's very crafty my mother and I have no Blue Peter skills, but my biological mother will. She sent me this. She said, it's a scarf I've made for you. It's not really a scarf, though, is it? It's a loop that goes on forever. It's a woolen apology. A tangible hug. A homemade birth canal. <laughs> And at times it feels umbilical and strangulating, but at other times warm and comforting. I've been Deborah Francis White. My show's Half a Can of Worms. Please come. Thank you very much. And we also like to be told a good story at Stand Up Tragedy, so Dave booked the Story Beast, also known as John Henry Four. In Harlan Hair Rot, Coat King Rotka, having pesky problem. And Mensilis Monster defense. Grendel Gongan, which crept into the Harlan Dictonicta and struggled the warriors into bed. So, from straight out of Gitland, Rotka called a man a meaty armor. He honeybuds a stranger. Beowulf, who sounded a lot like Ray Winstone. And so, while everyone good and pissed up, Beowulf lay in wakey waiting for the menster. And as in wakey waiting he lay, who should crept into the harbor but Grendel Gongan? And he thinks to himself, hmm, meet the bag and just a glance. But he think on up, and up streak of Beowulf and Rosalind once again. Rosalind, Gilada, Gilada, sir, Gilada, 
Rejoicing in the holler. When everyone gone and pissed up, who should come here and into the holler but massive troll hug grindle motor who strangled men in the motor warriors of Bale Field like what? We're gonna need a bigger boat. <laughs> so Bale freezing out the Farici for to find a massive menstrual motor. And as he reading out, he came to a forest, dead he bereft of leaf. And in the forest a set and pool, rippling which weird and currents, and strange beasties. So Baal stripped a bollocky buff, and he cast out, but to find a maxim mensil motor. And as he swam, what should come here in the darkness but a massive troll like grinnel motor, who drag him what he down, he down, <laughs> Scream about was he down and as everything got black what should Bale see glinting in the darkness but in giant Kniffen from warrior snack form and he hung in, and he swung on and he thundercats who Bits ahead of. It was amazing. And there was much rejoicing in the holler. Many in Yard and Lati, you know. It's a long time later. It's a Slav, you know. It's a Slav. We're not Slav. We don't have them no more because it's racist. But it's a Slav, you know. And a slav go into the barrow, and in the barrow is gold and joils. It is sleepy, scaly scara. <laughs> but a slav don't know that. <laughs> so he crept into the harbor, and he take a joilet cup. And what do you fuck think could happen? Squat, squat, squat! Big fucking dragon come out! Burn down the hells! Whoosh! Burn down the felder! Whoosh! Burn down the shooter! Whoosh! Oh, there's mere gay blades dragon! Whoosh! And by a wolf, you all like, what? I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> but he reads an out for the face of massive reptile. High on a hill, is it? High on hill stood Wiglaf, Comitatus, Kinfolk, best mate, and sighted gave for Beowulf. And he see a dreadlord swimming and slashing for dragonflies. And he see a dreadlord fall. So, heft in, hafted in hand, he reading out, he swimming, and he hefting, and he. Dragon exploded. It was amazing. And Wiggler feel like I've done that. But Beowulf, he saw the green, and with his final breath, he come. He apologies. 
even make you feel sad. Seeing me so tense, nick to self-confidence. But you see, the winner takes it all. And by a wolf, a man of much song, good king, honey badger string, a total windstone. Thus end by a wolf. Thank you. got to imagine what the effect of it. Oh, I do speak English, by the way. <laughs> I'm just uh, come back from Anglo-Saxon times to bamboozle you. Like, uh, like Hugh Jackman and Kate and Leopold. <laughs> but far more dashing. Niche reference there. Okay, uh, Jean Reno in Les Visiteurs. <laughs> but far more hairy. Uh, no, that's it, that's it. Doctor Who? No, never Of hearing uh, Beowulf must have been on a load of burly Anglo-Saxon warriors back in the day. But you know they'd be there in their mead hall, drinking their mead, on their mead benches, which is where you drink mead. And, and then a scop would come in, a ceremonial storyteller, and he'd say, hey guys, I'm going to tell you a story. It's about a, it's about a load of burly guys in a hall, just like you. And they're in there drinking their mead, just like you, on their mead benches, which is where you drink your mead, just like you. And then a monster happens! No! So they're all like, no! Not the, not in the hall! That's where we are! So very much the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of, but the calls were coming from inside the house! No! Not the house! That's where we live! Um, but actually, uh, just, just on the subject of martyrs, briefly, I'm going to retroactively make this bit the theme. Um, uh, Beowulf, actually, uh, we, don't, we don't know too much about it. We know that the, the text, as we have it, comes from the 9th century. And we can say with some certainty uh, that the author was some monks. Um, and, uh, and the thing about the monks is that, is that they've got a different religion to the one Beowulf has. Beowulf is part of a sort of Anglo-Saxon warrior culture, believes in Votan, believes in well, killing people, will make me happy, will break me better in the afterlife, die with lots of gold, uh, and in battle, hopefully. Uh, but the monks writing it down, they're all Christian. And so they know that Beowulf is going to hell, which is very unfortunate for Beowulf, and, and very unfortunate for the monks, because the thing is, they wrote that story down and they, they think Beowulf's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> so they don't want him, they don't want him to die. And so he basically becomes a kind of a, of a structured storyteller. We know, we know he's great, we know he kills loads of monsters and dragons, but ultimately he's going to hell. And let that be a, a lesson to all, that no matter how cool you are, you, you will go to hell. <laughs> so, so buck up your ideas. Yes. Um, so that's retroactively making that fit the theme. Um, I do actually, but I do have something which is, which is about the theme tonight. I do actually have, a, I've got a favourite martyr. Uh, I, I come from the island of Jersey. That's exactly what it deserved. 
from the island of Jersey. Uh, anyone, anyone know what the patron saint of Jersey is? Come on. Bergerac. <laughs> he died for our sins, you know, John Nettles. <laughs> he died proselytizing in Jersey in the middle of the Royal Square. And we cut him up and burnt him in a wicker man, which is what we do. Um, <laughs> no, uh, the patron saint of Jersey is St. Helier. St. Helier? No? Familiar? That, that's our town centre. If you've seen Bergerac, you will be intimately familiar with St. Helier. Um, best thing about Bergerac, while we're on the subject, while we're on the subject of Bergerac, let me just disabuse a few of you. Of dis- I think it's the same for anyone who lives in the Oxfordshire towns where they set midsummer. But if John Nettles goes in a building... Uh, in St. Helier, in Bergerac, he can very easily come out on the other side of the island. Now, none of you who've never been to Jersey and who care, evidently, by the sound of that cheer, um, won't be able to notice that. But when I, when I watch Bergerac on, on watch, 3 p.m. on Sunday afternoons, check it out, um, you, uh, you have to, uh, you notice, I just notice, I just notice, no, he's, he's, gone in that, he's gone in that door, he's come on the other side of the island. And so Bergerac becomes a kind of, becomes like a, another episode, it becomes like an episode of Doctor Who. Sort of, where are these doors opening in time? How are they allowing his egress through space? There's some sort of wormhole in that jeweler shop. And he's come out on the other side of the island. Ooh, ooh, Bergerac, you don't care. Um, <laughs> uh, no, the patron saint of Jersey is St. Helier. And St. Helier's, um, St. Helier's uh, crest is a blue shield with two axes on it. And that's a little clue as to precisely how he got martyred. We don't, again, we don't really, he's a bit of, he's a legendary figure, really. Uh, we, don't, we don't know that much about him. He, uh, he's a sixth century saint from Belgium, uh, weirdly enough, and he came to the islands and he went out and he lived on a rock for, for 20 years. And it's rather, I've always found that rather mysterious choice to make as a career, instead of, well, you know, so you've gone out and been a comedian. Yeah, I didn't go out and live on a rock for 20 years. Uh, around, surrounded by very cold water. Very cold water. Uh, we don't actually know that much about him. We know he was baptised 150 years before he was born. Uh, if we're to believe both of the medieval hagiographies on his life, he was baptised 150 years before he was born, while dying still a young man 200 years later. Uh, which doesn't quite work, maths fans. Um, uh, and St. Helier, St. Helier uh, used to alert the, uh, the primitive peoples of Jersey uh, from pirates coming from the coast. So he'd be out on the rock in the middle of the sea and he'd, he'd see the pirates coming into land and he'd light a lantern. And the Jersey people would all be, know to run away, run away from the pirates that were coming to ravage, ravage their crops and, and probably people as well. Uh, and, and, but one day, uh, St. Helier was, uh, was caught by the pirates and they beheaded him, beheaded him with, with a couple of axes, just to be sure, two axes, not just one axe, two axes to make sure he was dead. But then he got up (laughs) and he got up and he carried his head over to, and did, did a little jig and, uh, and, and, and preached the gospel and did whatever, you know, saints do. And it uh, was generally miraculous. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that is the martyrdom of St. Helier. Uh, I've got a story here about, about St. Helier. Uh, 
because uh, I, I, I seriously don't know how he ended up on that rock. So I, I've, I've guessed somewhat at, at his motives here for this story. So this is a story called St. Helier's Passions. Every morning, St. Helier would awake with a good, solid scream. It was the same scream every morning. Ah! He would scream. As he remembered where he was and why he was there. On a rock. On top of a slightly larger rock. Off an even bigger rock. Out in the middle of the ocean. He'd been there for years. Below him stormed the raging surf, boiling itself into foam and spray. Occasionally, he'd be woken by the icy cold spray bursting over his body as he lay on the cold, lonesome rock he called his bed. Occasionally, but also for years. But it was all worth it, said Henry, I suppose. Wasn't it? Admittedly, it was a, there was a little screaming to be done every morning, but St. Helia supposed it was only the regular amount of screaming anyone had to do. <laughs> Certainly anyone who lived on it on a rock out in the middle of the ocean. Then again, he'd, he'd never met another one. No, St. Helia decided. It was definitely a proportionate amount of screaming. Totally proportionate to the alternative. <laughs> Girls... Women, ladies, St. Helier muttered, they're all right in moderation. As I'm sure you can guess, the moderate amount for St. Helier was none at all, if he could help it, which he did, by living on a rock. It was only a few months after saying goodbye to Belgium and society and dry land that St. Helier heard the voices... Soft at first, but then, more terrifyingly, softer still. Voices sad as the surf and softer than foam. Female voices that sang in high, sad songs and warbled through his rock. And then the awful, warm faces that said things like, How are you today, St. Helia? Or, Lovely weather we're having, eh, St. Helia? Or, Would you mind showing me the way to France, St. Helia? I've been awfully silly and got lost. Go away, please, St. Helio would say. So the voices would leave, and St. Helio would have to dash off and plunge himself into the coldest and most uncomfortable pool he could find. I mean, the cheek of it, that these soft and female things should ask him such impertinent questions. And him on his rock, too. He hadn't left dry land and all its fleshy disturbances behind to be spoken to like that. That's what rocks were for. But sooner or later, and it was always too soon for St. Helia, the singing, legless, fish-tailed voices would be back, back to singing him a nice ditty about a fun new way to knit seaweed or telling what the dogfish were really talking about, which was rarely scintillating, only to wave a polite goodbye and wish St. Helia a good evening. Soon after, St. Helia would wake to awful, fleshy screams need to give himself a jolly good plunge. One day, he mumbled, as he made his rock really, really uncomfortable. One day, they'll make me a saint for this. Saint, Saint Helier. <laughs> he liked the sound of that. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Um,
Ooh, a lot of first. Uh, I'm going to leave you on. One, I'm going to leave you on one last thing. Uh, does anyone know all the kings? Anyone? Anyone know all the kings? Anyone know the poem for knowing all the kings? No, you know the poem because Willie, Willie, Harry, Stee. No one. No one else go to public school. <laughs> Seriously, come on, make them hate you. Make them hate you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's very, it's very, it's a very good one. It's a very good one. Uh, it's, uh, it's very good. It lets you put history in order. It's very useful. Uh, it goes, it goes. Uh, Willie, Willie, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Neds, Richard, two, Harry's four, five, six. Then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the bad, Harry's twain, and Ned the lad, Mary, Bessie, James the vain, Charlie, Charlie, James again. William and Mary, and a Gloria for George's William and Victoria, yes! Edward VII next, and then George V in 1910. Ned VIII soon abdicated, then George VI was coronated, after which Elizabeth, and Charlie III upon her death. Then William and Kate arrive, they reign well while they're alive, but Harry IX was cleared of all wrongdoing. And then we get Paul and Paul again. And then a Paul and Paul the fourth and five times Paul, Paul six and seven, eight, nine, ten, and Paul eleven. Worst of men who stabbed dogs just because they were there. <laughs> and, and was deposed by Paul, his heir. Next, Charlie four, Chantel, Clarice, Bessie three, Paul, Paul, and Reese. Ned the ninth reigned well enough if you'll ignore that war and stuff. <laughs> Henry VIII rose from the dead. Bad news for wifey Seven's head. <laughs> then things start getting rather vague upon the coming of the plague. We know Rhys too reigned safe and hunkered down inside his little bunker. One Paul follows next and then. The reigning of the shadow men. Giggling Gog with Leather Jack, the parasite and fighting pack, the queen whose name we dare not speak, the king whose eyes made strong men weak, the empress made of all our fears, the demon monarch reigned for years, the fool, the hierophant, the grey! Trixie Flixie Stephen Ray. <laughs> Last, Arthur comes to green the land. With Britain's darkest hour at hand, he burnt the alien ships on high. Turns to his barrow, there to lie. Then England of its kings did bore. There's one more Paul, and then no more. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for letting me bore you with stories of Jersey. Have a very good night, ladies and gentlemen. Tragedy is so much more than just what's happening on the stage, though. Off stage, we have a fanzine which is for sale online and at every show, and the audience were asked to get involved by writing the last letter ever written by a tragic martyr. To see what they came up with, have a look in our Facebook photos. We also have the live scriber Peter Mori creating live art depending on what he hears that night. His cartoon murals are then auctioned off at the end of the show, but you can see what he drew on our Facebook page. He spoke to Charlie during the show. In, uh, in the martyrdom theme, 
Okay. Have you been researching martyrs and thinking about martyr-like drawings to do? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So I've I've started off with like I've started to do the title and a strong central image to give me a framework. Um, so I've just done a, a dead bloke with a with a thing coming out of him like a ghost, oh. and it's the emblem, the the jester. Thing. So it's like he's a martyr. It's not referencing anything in particular. I was thinking Joan of Arc, but I don't know how to draw her. I'll give her a go. Who's your favourite martyr? Top five favourite martyrs. Top five <laughs> okay, I haven't done that much research. <laughs> I'll give you the top one, Joan of Arc. Stand up tragedy. So these are my highlights from Stand Up Tragedy's Tragic Martyrs. There's more from Stand Up Tragedy next month, so come and join us at the Hackney Attic on the 16th of May to enjoy some tragic history. Tickets are available online right now, so book your place and come along. Right.